Good afternoon and welcome to Remediating Telehealth Security Risks Introduced During the COVID Fight, a health system CIO media Inc. production sponsored by Medigate. So a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Nice way to view the screen. Click um, get in into side-by-side -side mode. Click on the top center, and then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35 minutes or so with our main panel discussion featuring Shafali Mukancheri, CISO and System Director of Information Security with Edward Elmhurst Health, Brian Kayer, CISO with Wellforce, and Jonathan Langer, Co-Founder and CEO with Medigate. So let's jump right in. We've got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Um, Shafali, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. So we are a multi-hospital health system. Uh, we do work with quite a few physician groups and we have outreach satellite locations uh, that we provide services uh, as well. Um, I have been with Edward Elmhurst Health for probably about eight months now and prior to that have been in the healthcare industry for over 25 years, uh, mostly in information security and have worked through various settings, not only in hospitals, health systems, but also for from an insurance uh, company perspective as well. And I'm really looking forward to talking with everyone today about the remediating uh, security risk during COVID. Very good, Shafali. Thank you. Brian? So Brian Kerr, I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for Wellforce. So Wellforce is a parent company to uh, multiple um, healthcare organizations, an uh, academic medical center, one children's hospital, two community hospitals, a home health foundation, and a physician's network. Um, I've been with Wellforce for a little over a year and a half um, and had the privilege of starting just in time before the pandemic occurred. <laughs> so just getting my feet wet. And prior to my time at uh, Wellforce, I spent some time in security consulting and working in the financial sector as well um, before that. Very good, Brian. Thank you. Jonathan? Hello, everyone. I'm Jonathan Langer. I'm the CEO of a company called Medigate. I also co-founded the company back in 2017. Medigate is a healthcare security company. We provide solutions for security solutions for all connected assets within the healthcare enterprise, IoT, IOMT, IT assets, any, anything that's really part of the clinical workflow. And uh, I'm excited to, to talk about uh, our topic today. And, uh, looking forward to a good conversation. Very good, Jonathan. Thank you. All right, Brian, let's start with you. Describe the pressure healthcare IT professionals were under to roll out new solutions during the height of COVID. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, starting out, I was on for like about 90 days before we started having to put together our plans for um, for during the kind of called the COVID crisis. So initially, I think the, the biggest challenge was when I came on, we didn't actually have uh, any remote access policies and procedures, really. We had some users with remote access, but it was very limited. So the first thing really was thinking about standing up 
remote access for employees that we're going to send home that were non-critical to direct patient care at the time. So, you know, making sure we had VPN access to factor authentication for all individuals, um, standing up the environments to support the capacity. Um, other things, telemedicine solutions. So in, in the February of uh, 2019, we're at, uh, uh, 2020, we're actually looking at, um, you know, telemedicine options through, you know, and kind of do a six month plan, you know, process to build out. So we had to immediately start building out telemed solutions and, you know, offering more than one, right? So we didn't really have a, you know, plan to address and say, here's the solutions that's been tested. It's, we have to have multiple solutions out there. Um, and again, you know, building up remote workforce, Zoom meetings, uh, Zoom was, we had, I think we had 15 Zoom accounts at the time pre pre-pandemic, um, now several thousand. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of that as well. So a lot of other capabilities and during, you know, so it's really the, the first piece was that stand-up capability. How do we make sure, how do we get people working remotely? How do we set up? What are the, what are the aspects? Getting this policy, training people. So once we kind of decided that we're going to have a remote workforce, we needed to really stand it up. Um, and then, you know, then there's a lot of adaptiveness during the, the crisis about standing on um, testing centers, new testing stuff, you know, new places to say, do that. How do we get it? How do we establish network? You know, what are the new changes? Um, you know, so from that perspective, you know, um, once we are doing, we had to do everybody, just, you know, COVID tracking, you know, applications, building that so we could test everybody's um, symptoms. Um, some of those were part of it as well. Some new you know, uh, new features for um, medical support to, to minimize our PPE, right? You know, usage. So, you know, we had, you know, when we are a lot of ventilators, how could we get these ventilators to now actually report remotely so that they could be monitored from, from a nurse's station collectively doing that? So that was some, you know, immediate need to do that. So we don't need to keep looking at um, and adjusting because previously ventilators were in the room. So I asked to go in, but in the, with the need for, dawning on the PP was just, you know, we wanted to conserve that we were limited early on limited capacity. So we want to make sure um, also remote camera monitoring, right? So how do we set up cameras for patient viewing so we could do that as well? So we don't same thing, you know, PP con conservation as well. So there's some of the things that the initial challenges, right? That we saw the pressures and obviously, you know, to, to get them, you know, basically get it done now, right? It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, like we have time to evaluate, you know, it's implementation today. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the initial things that we had to get done. Very good. Shafali? So just adding along with what Brian said, that, you know, everything he said is, is what most organizations have probably felt. And I would just add to that, you know, remote printing was a, a big issue when folks are remote and you know, applications, um, when you have infrastructure that needs people to be on site in your organization, some of the challenges with maintaining infrastructure was something we had to also consider is, you know, how do we get people in to stand up a server if we needed to, because we needed to increase capacity? Um, how do we work with, you know, physicians and what they're demanding to do remote sessions with patients? Um, and then the biggest thing that we've run into was policies and procedures. Do we really hold people accountable to what we have as policies and procedures? You know, during the pandemic, the policies and procedures were 
something that, you know, we, we looked at, but felt that, you know, we have to make some exceptions. And, you know, the exception started with all of the notices that, you know, we were getting from the government, right? And saying, here, you can use this platform, but not the other platform. You can use Zoom, but not WhatsApp, as an example. So, you know, we started to see a panic in the provider community as to, well, okay, how am I going to communicate with my patients? And all of a sudden, employees, um, out, outsourced research um, folks, using their phones, their personal phones to reach out to patients. And so trying to get a control over that type of environment where everybody's just in reaction mode that to understand really what's out there and how to control it, I think that was the, the pressure that we felt the most is communication. How do we communicate between the organization, the providers, contractors, most importantly, the patients? And I think it's just critical to really understand that policies are there, procedures are there, but, you know, what is your downtime procedures look like? Um, you know, and you kind of have to go into this business continuity mode as well. Uh, you know, making sure that, you know, you've got texting uh, and, you know, if you don't have a texting policy, maybe you've developed one by now. Um, one of the things that we've noticed is we had seven texting applications that we use. Well, how do we get to seven? It's because we had, Providers go out and get their own, and then we had organizations say, oh, nope, we want to roll it down to five, and these are the ones that are mandatory that can be used securely, and one of the things that we did do, though, is rolled out multi-factor authentication to everyone. It was 100% mandatory compliance. Uh, we were lucky to have that compliance, and we, we pride ourselves on that because we don't give access to anyone unless you've got, you know, multi-factor authentication. So that was one of the things that we learned through this whole, uh, you know, the pressure of healthcare IT is how do we get some kind of control over who's using what, when they're using it, how do we get the infrastructure folks on site without causing any safety uh, health issues? That was the other part. And then the remote workers, you know, just something as simple as, hey, I need a patient schedule. Uh, or a provider schedule, how do I get that? How do I print that? And some of these basic things that we know that go on, but during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was, do you allow your schedulers to print from home, scan it, and then send it in uh, to the different uh, physician offices that might have people staffed there? Um, so it caused for a lot of rework on our workflows and the impact to patients. We really tried to minimize what would happen with the patients. And communication was set up, you know, we had a command center. We were trying to get everyone notified, make sure that, uh, you know, we had daily calls uh, to make sure that we were all informed. Quick follow-up, Shafali. You, you talked about multi-factor authentication um, and how important that was to you was rolled out 100%. Um, w was that one of the main things that you said this absolutely no question this must go out to everyone did you have any pushback on that from users um, it sounds like you absolutely th that was something very important to you yes we got a lot of pushback but um, part of rolling this out to everyone was that you know if you want to have that remote connection you have to have this and it's just a couple clicks it's not like we're asking you to do it all the time, multiple times throughout the day, right? Um, and it's, you know, when you're looking at really using your EHR for patient care, the multi-factor authentication is definitely there for use with the EHR. You know, and that's the other thing is any connection that 
we needed uh, or a person remotely needed, they come through there. And so education was one of the key things we went through. Um, and then helping them understand what the risk was when they're working at home or a remote location. You know, if something were to come through a virus, would you recognize it? So helping folks understand what a secure email looks like. And, you know, we also worked on trying to tell them, you know, multi-factor authentication looks like this. This is how you're going to use it. This is what it means for you. Um, and so in the beginning, it was a little, you know, tough. Uh, you know, providers didn't really want to have a couple more clicks because they want to treat the patients. But we said, you know, in order to use the system, you've got to have it. So, you know, we went through a little bit of rocky road in the beginning, but then that was like about a month. And then, you know, people got used to it, just like with anything when you're changing passwords or, you know, you get a rocky road at the beginning and then you work through and you smooth it out as time goes by. Very good. Jonathan, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that the the experience that I had through uh, throughout COVID in, in working with our uh, partners and customers kind of had an opportunity to see uh, what people were doing, and I think in many ways it, it's very consistent uh, naturally with uh, with what Brian and Shafali had mentioned. Um, I mean, remote work, just getting things set up, that was kind of the the first step uh, that everyone was uh, was rushing to do. Uh, some had uh, some organizations had contingency plans. Uh, some did not. Uh, definitely made a difference uh, in that regard in terms of the, their uh, level of uh, preparedness. Um, I think uh, one 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 other thing, or a couple other things that I've been seeing is that, and this was amazing, that the rollout of new sites, whether it's a vaccin vaccination sites or treatment sites and, and tents or all sorts of. A provisional a, a buildings. It was just done overnight. Could be big, big rollouts that, in in normal times, would have taken weeks and months of planning and execution. That happened all at once, and thanks to all the all the folks on the front line and the IT support that was given there. Um, telemedicine that was huge for many healthcare systems. All of a sudden, uh, telemedicine became uh, a thing overnight, um, and a lot of folks were rushing to do that. Maybe we'll touch upon this in, in security aspects of this, uh, but I, I have seen many organizations that have been doing the rollout without involving security just because it was so hasty. So it was a different uh, part of the HDO that was doing this. Uh, obviously, that was the need of the hour, so it's understandable, but there is, a, in my eyes, at least a security angle uh, that is somewhat addressed, but, but not entirely. Um, and then lastly, uh, to, to Shafali's point, I think that with regard to the security aspects of this, uh, I've seen a lot of HDOs doing training uh, just because everything has, uh, everything has changed overnight. Uh, so much more phishing, much more emails, the remote access, what are you allowed to do, what are you not allowed to do, uh, multi-factor authentication, of course, I know a lot of people sometimes push back on that uh, naturally, um, but that required a ton of training, uh, so I've seen HDOs very much engaged in that as well. Uh, that would be my, my personal experience. All right, very good. Brian, let's, uh, let's jump uh, in with you here. What types of compromises did security professionals have to make in terms of approving applications they might not have green-lighted during regular times? Or was there even a green-lighting involved? Or, or, you know, as Jonathan mentioned, um, security sometimes was just not even consulted 
Um, so your thoughts there? So I'd say we were fortunate that security was consulted, um, but obviously the the bandwidth of our capabilities was limited between the, you know, there's a lot of need, right, coming at us at the same point. So we were just trying to make sure we triage them, tracked them, and it came back with like doing an initial risk, you know, what is this risk level? What do we do? What's it, what is the impact if we don't do it? And then how do we make sure we come back to normal to, to review it? Um, so when you think about some of the things like, you know, kind of Shafali mentioned too, like, you know, remote printing, I mean, we are, healthcare is obviously very, a lot of faxing, right? So a lot of inter you know, departments are faxing. Well, nobody's at, or nobody in the office actually grabbed the faxes, right? So we had to think about ways of, you know, how are we doing this? How do we change this up? And really um, not necessarily technologies that we wouldn't have implemented, but we would have probably done a little bit more uh, review up front before we did it. Um, but there's a lot of that work to making sure that we can support that, right? How, again, because when you're, some of your operations did shift their um, access is same thing, standing up, you know, a lot of, um, not so much about an application perspective, but just remote access for, let's say, vendor support. Previously, it was, you know, they were coming on site doing some of the stuff. Now, they're not, they're restricted from coming on site, right? We, we have strict rules. No one, no outside vendors to come in unless it's, you know, some type of hardware emergency, but how could they now support some of these applications? So it was really green lighting, not just the applications, but the support of those applications doing that. Um, but even, you know, same thing, we talked about telemed, you know, FaceTime was used, right? We knew, you know, hey, this is going to, you know, it was, you know, it was kind of allowed during that piece, but something that we probably wouldn't have if we weren't in, you know, kind of the pandemic crisis. So there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, things that I went, you know, I said that we had to really go through and, you know, get expedite because of those risks. And like I talked about those other items that said, you know, we knew we had to put in certain technologies to support, you know, the IC monitoring of patients and other aspects to do that, to minimize that, you know, we were, everybody's concerned that we were going to not have PPE to support, you know, the ongoing need. So we were, that was a real big factor of conservation. What could we do to do that? And so that, again, there was no really, you know, green light. We, you know, like I said, I was fortunate that they did bring us in because we wanted to make sure that there wasn't any gaps like or stops in this that said, well, we can't do it because we've got to ask security. So security was immensely engaged. And, you know, for this first part, what we did is we stood up, like the same thing as you probably noted, we had a command center. Uh, we were actually manning it, you know, 24 by seven going through that process, I think for at least the first 60 days until we started things getting a little bit more normalized. So that was exactly it. What is the issue? Who do we got it? So we had a staff with both, you know, uh, you know, um, security engineers, as well as, you know, desktop and server and, you know, support network support. So everyone's there. So when the problem came up, we had all the people there to go and say, here's a process, here's do it. We identified it, you know, said, here's, you know, we decided a risk-based approach, move it forward, and it will evaluate later if, if we needed to um, manage anything when we come back to a normal state. Very good, Shafali. So just adding on to what Brian said, I think, you know, this is related to applications, approving applications. So one of the things right off the bat that was a challenge for us is, you know, we, we try to pride ourselves in doing the vendor security applications, uh, security risk assessments for these applications. Mm -hmm. So any new applications come on, we go through a rigorous process uh, with that vendor. Well, 
you know, we had to take thermal uh, readings of all the patients coming through or of the employees themselves that were coming on site. So how do we go get a application that reads the uh, temperature readings, right? Uh, do they go through our vendor security risk assessment process? Well, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And so we needed a rush on that, right? Because we wanted to get, we still wanted to see patients, but um, we also wanted some of the employees, you know, we're a 24 by 7, 365 uh, organization. So we still needed people to come in wearing their masks, double masks, uh, you know, eye shields, right? Uh, you name it. And so with the PPE, and but we still had to treat patients. And so given that, uh, we also had the requirement of, hey, we need to do contract tracing now. And so how do you put a risk assessment on a, a tracing application that, you know, you're working with registries and the uh, county health departments and trying to understand, you know, how you're going to use their application? Uh, will you go on a website and log in that way? And now you're transmitting uh, protected health information, right, PHI, that normally we would not have. Uh, and so now you need an application to do that. So there were certain things that we just had to do uh, in order to move us along uh, through the pandemic, provide the documentation, tracking and tracing, you know, because we, we started, you know, just it just rolled right through us. And so we wanted to make sure we captured everything. And then the other part of this is as the pandemic had started to slow, you know, there was all this reimbursement coming from the government. And so how are we tracking, you know, how many man hours we spent on uh, the pandemic and all the requirements that we had to meet for reimbursement? Because I'm sure many organizations took a financial hit. And due to that, there was the assistance from the government to help with the um, work that needs to be done to have everyone work through the pandemic. And so then you have to itemize all your expenses as well. And then there's a reporting structure. So then there's an application for that. So then you have to, you know, do you do your security risk assessment on this vendor? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It just depends on the organization. So those are some of the other challenges that organizations uh, definitely had to face when trying to approve applications. And you're right that, you know, there are some security processes you just have to let go because you're in this, this mode of let's get, to get going through this, let's get the patients through, let's understand what's happening. And from a personal perspective, what is my role all in all this while I'm trying to safeguard my own health from everybody else, right? It was almost everyone for themselves, but we still had to work together. So, you know, finding that balance is a tough thing in a pandemic. But, um, you know, I have to say within the organization I work for, everyone was spectacular, uh, I have to say. <laughs> Shafali, um, security professionals like yourself, you, you deal in risk, right? I mean, you're supposed to understand risk and then communicate risk and moderate risk and all that kind of thing. You're supposed to know the level of risk. Was it difficult, do you think, for people like yourself to accept that increased risk? I mean, you're wired a certain way for controls and things to you know, be processed and reviewed. Was it hard to let go of some of that and let that risk level rise? Yes, it was very hard, but we have learned that we have to be flexible. Because mm -hmm. the industry we're in is all about the patient, taking care of the patient. They are, no, they are our number one concern. So at times we have to find that balance to say, oh, yeah, you know what, with that vendor, we're going to let them go. We'll implement that because we need to have the thermal uh, readings on the, the patients. So then we can come back and say, you know what, we'll work on this in tandem. 
So therefore, you go get the application purchase to start using it, operationalize it, socialize it. But in the meantime, the security staff was continuing on their security risk assessment. So, you know, it was in tandem. It's not like we stopped and didn't do the security risk assessment in that example. So we had to work in parallel. It's just we couldn't do it before a purchase. And, mm-hmm. you know, our uh, supply chain uh, management process is to do it before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the purchase occurs. Um, and then the contracting and all the legal, right? So um, it just some of the processes were, you know, jumbled up and then we kind of right-sized them. Um, but things were working in tandem. So Very good. Jonathan? Uh, um, so I think just in, in listening to, to Shafali and Brian, and, and I, I have been feeling the same or observing the same, COVID was all about, at the height of COVID, it was all about accelerating uh, existing processes uh, that, that most of them were there to begin with, but now you just have to do them faster and uh, in a, from a quantitative perspective, just more more repetitive. Um, I think in that regard, I would definitely agree with the, the security assessments piece. Uh, just so many new systems coming into the organization, so many new applications, really hard to use the existing uh, processes in order to get to get through them. And really, everyone wanted things to be in place because there are patients that need that need that support. So I think that was um, that that was definitely a, a compromise that at least. Uh, that at least I saw. Um, I could even say on a, on a personal basis, when folks needed to install a, our software, all of a sudden things moved, moved along much faster where, where you typically we would move through a, a thorough risk assessment process, discuss, discuss all the aspects of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the application. And, and now it was like, we, we just need this and let's, let's, move, let's move along faster. And I'm sure that it was like this for, uh, for all the other vendors out there. Um, I think one other aspect that I've been seeing is also a compromise uh, pertains to, to access. You get a lot of new uh, information systems in place and the identity mapping in terms of access wasn't quite complete just because again, the, uh, the velocity of, in which things were moving. Um, so sometimes people would have a little bit more access than they needed. Uh, sometimes one too many rules uh, in the firewall it would be deleted because someone from uh, remote access uh, needs uh, needs that access and fast. Uh, so you, you don't want to wait. Like, okay, we'll remove this rule just to, to get uh, to get the system going. Um, I think that's somewhat again of a of a compromise due to the acceleration of the of the otherwise uh, existing process. Um, telehealth maybe as a subset of of an application. Uh, it was good to hear that from Brian that that you had been consulted uh, about the the deployment. I've had I've had a experiences where where that hasn't been quite the case, and it was it was more of a consultation in retrospect uh, <laughs> after uh, <laughs> after a vendor had been selected and after there was already some architecture in place. So that's uh, uh, obviously better to be consulted up front. Um, and then lastly, um, and this is just uh, one of the, the issues of, uh, of remote work, one of the repercussions, lots of VPN setup. Uh, VPN, uh, obviously there's, there's good and bad in, in usage of, of VPN. Um, and uh, otherwise maybe other technologies could be considered and uh, there's uh, new ways to go about this, but just in the, 
in the in at the heat of the moment, uh, a lot of new VPNs had to be established, and uh, I think that in normal times, that may have been done differently. All right, very good, Jonathan. We're going to stick with you on this question. Should all healthcare IT executives be revisiting what was rolled out during the height of COVID to assess excessive risk? What's the, what's the best way to go about such a review? Uh, so I think in essence, um, you know, you, you said it before when you were when you were asking Shefali. I think that security professionals, uh, in in essence, that the job requirement is to balance risk. It's risk. It's a, it's an ongoing risk management exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, of course uh, I would go back and, and look at all the applications and everything that had been done through COVID. However, in reality, just given that there's only 24 hours in one day, um, the in my eyes, the only way to really do this in a in a realistic way would be to prioritize. You really have to go about this and look at the risk of all the new devices that were installed, the new applications, the new systems, and so on, in a prioritized manner. Otherwise, you'll never you'll never be able to get to where you need to be in in a in a short period of time. And when I say uh, prioritize, in my eyes, it's all about uh, looking at the clinical context. So it's uh, it's the the famous uh, uh, formula of looking at the at the at the probability uh, of a, of an incident, uh, and also looking at the at the potential impact. So I would definitely use that high level formula and say. Okay, this uh, this impact could be on a specific uh, patient. It could it could pertain to patient safety or or patient privacy. Uh, so that's definitely something to look at, and then look ultimately at the at the attack surface of the device, at the level of uh, associated vulnerabilities, and so on. And this way, just to prioritize system by system uh, as you do the risk assessment uh, and and look at what can be done and uh, potential compensating controls and and so on that you would need to install. A automation when it comes to these kinds of things is ideal, just given the the quantity. There's all sorts of software to to assess risk and vulnerabilities and so on. So I would definitely try to automate as much as I can about this and then just do um, the one-by-one assessments based on that uh, prioritization, which I believe is key. Very good, Brian. So... Um, interesting. So in, in uh, April of uh, 2020, during the, the height, we actually had a special kind of board meeting because they want to actually understand, say, are we looking at those cyber risks that had been introduced from COVID? So we worked together to ensure that we presented it up to our board level as well and executive leaders about here's a cyber risk that was being, you know, we're seeing, you know, and, and make sure everybody has an understanding. So both from New operational services, increased uh, remote workforce, that third-party contractor, or, or in third application support. So we walked through all those. Here's where we are. We made sure we kind of gave that. We actually wanted to stand up and start up to saying, let's make sure we have a return to normal plan. So let's make sure we understand what are we doing as we're going through this stuff. Yes, we all know we're taking on additional risks. We're we're addressing that, but how do we go back and saying let's go back and you know, go back to normal. So, you know, make sure we understand the return of loaned equipment, right? So where is this started? Where, what kind of data, especially if it has PHI and it's, it's not on site, um, disable and, and uh, you know, temporary access 
you know, follow up on all those security reviews. So we were doing the same thing um, Shafa was doing when we were doing these new, you know, we have typically it's like before we contract with a, you know, vendor or, or um, application, we're going to go through the security review and understand it beforehand. But obviously a lot of that because of the timing needed, it was going to be in parallel or, yeah, we're looking at an inherent risk is low and the impact is high. So let's get it in and we'll follow those up. So these are all things we had documented. We made sure we you know, kept, and that was part of that command center piece. All these things, whether or not somebody made a decision, it was all documented, went through and said, let's go reevaluate that. Um, but, you know, the other things are, you know, making sure that, you know, again, you know, um, that we did do it based on this risk-based approach. So just... Very good. Very good, Shafali. But just adding along with what uh, Brian and Jonathan said, um, I would say that, you know, we as ex- executives always have to be revisiting something like COVID because it is a disaster. In, in my eyes, that was a disaster that we had to get control over. And so, you know, did we engage our disaster recovery plan? Did we engage our business continuity plan? And so what comes out of that is working with emergency management and response teams, right? Not only internally, but externally. And so, you know, looking back, did, you know, do organizations do a lessons learned type of thing and an activity that starts from the board level down and or from the um, director level on up and to say, yes, you know, we do need to revisit this because we did so many things so quickly that, you know, where could we have had an opportunity to improve or make things more efficient should we have another disaster? Mm-hmm. So this is really looking at, you know, going forward, you know, do you test your, you know, disaster recovery plan? Do you test your business continuity plan? And I always like to think of the four concentric circles where I look at, you know, emergency management and response. I look at business continuity and then cybersecurity and then emergency management and response. Those four are so intertwined in such a pandemic like like COVID that you need all four working together as, as a you know parts of a bicycle wheel, right? They're all the folks that need to work together to move the machine forward. So I, I believe that you always have to revisit after a disaster. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. All right. What we're going to do now is uh, one of my favorite parts of the program. It's ask a co-panelist where I don't ask the questions, but the panelists ask each other. So, Jonathan, let's start with you. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I do. Um, so maybe I'll start with Shefali. Um, the, just listening to, to your last comment about uh, the, the learning process and, um, and how you look at this in retrospect, when you look at COVID, what would be, from a security perspective, what would be your number one lessons learned? What what what, what would you do differently in hindsight? Uh, Brian, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, so I think what I would do differently, so I think it's actually going back a little bit to um, what you probably know about your kind of business continuity plan, making sure that we really use that and say, we're, we're really, this pandemic is think about it as kind of, you know, a disaster situation, right? So are we following that? Are we going through? 
So we make sure that we include those going forward with any updates or when we're taking those after actions saying what, what worked, what didn't work, how can we improve? Because I think that's the, the way I look at it too is, you know, we're not going to, I mean, we're, we're still in the pandemic. I mean, we're, we're obviously some pieces are going to see another surge. So I think, you know, we have to really think about this is potentially our working model for, you know, you know, a more longer term period. So we want to make sure we're, we're, we adapted to all those changes, you know, in prepping that. I think, you know, we didn't think about it in that context early on. I think we started adapting that later on saying, yes, yeah, so it's just really like, you know, going through that process and building up is, it's not just the cyber risk and the other piece. It's, it's all that, right. I mean, we didn't think, you know, supplier risk, you know, there's just so many things that were, you know, you know, challenging to us and say, well, oh, yeah, we use the supplier. Well, they have three people and now they all develop COVID and they, they can't come in and they can't support. Well, what, what's our backup plan? Do we even have that? Do we even have that as a question we ask people on kind of that stuff when we do our cyber reviews or, or vendor assessments from a, a vendor and saying, we didn't think about their ability to actually be there. We just always kind of assumed it just from that perspective because, you know, we, we have all the new protocols about, you know, quarantining that didn't exist before. Um, so definitely those things I think had to, you know, we, had, we probably didn't think that up front and adapt that in, but I think those are those same thing. We take the lessons learned running through um, those exercises and let's make sure we build this in as we go forward, start identifying those areas, identifying those other areas of risk that, that now wouldn't have been thought of before the pandemic as things we would check as part of our, you know, um, due diligence for any onboarding process that we have. Shafali? So, so Jonathan, could you repeat your question? Yes. So um, the question that I asked was in retrospect, uh, you were talking earlier about the, the learning process, the lessons learned. Uh, when you look back at your experience uh, from a security standpoint uh, during COVID, in hindsight, what would you improve or what would you do differently now that you've experienced what you've experienced? Thank you for that. Uh, so first thing right off the bat is re-looking at how we established a command center uh, from a security perspective and how the communications were put together because we had compliance, we had a whole bunch of departments going, okay, what do we do now? And from the clinical perspective, they were all in downtime mode, going through what they could, getting the PPE in and getting that on, taking care of patients. But from a IT security perspective, you know, we were wondering, okay, what's going to happen? How are we going to get these folks remote access? How do we set up, like you were saying, Jonathan, earlier, VPN or VDI, which is going to be the more secure route? Uh, and then trying to really understand when we did have IT staff out with COVID, how do we get the work still going? How do we still support all the issues that we see? If we have an ultrasound machine down, how do we get the technicians out there to take a look at it? So I think, you know, looking back at the disaster recovery plan, business continuity plan, you know, and working with emergency management response, you know, this was a real functional test for us. It was a real disaster for everyone. And so the worst could have happened, it happened, right? So now taking a look back and say, you know what, we, we did all these great things, but 
out of that comes all these risks that we realize that, you know, if we only had certain workflows in place, if we only had purchased certain applications. So what would come out of that, I would say, is a remediation plan. And so one of the things that I did was uh, look at all the things that went wrong and said, okay, how do, how do we improve on this? Or how do we prevent this from happening again? And, you know, putting together a five-year roadmap to say, all right, here's the risks that we saw through this pandemic. And then, assigning each one as a project and seeing what the timeline would look to take um, the task to uh, you know, completion and what was involved in the resources to plan that out and create that five-year roadmap. So that's kind of the lessons learned through this is, you know, there's so many things that could have gone wrong and there were so many things that uh, we did great, but, you know, again, it was spur of the moment. Let's everybody on deck, let's get yeah. through this. And it wasn't only for, you know, a 90 day period, you know, most disaster uh, recovery plans are for like 96 hours, and this was many months. So, you know, it's the, the thing that I would take away is when we look at these DR plans and BC plans is what about for six months at a time? You know, what would that look like for us? And how would we handle a disaster for six months at, at the minimum? So it really made us rethink that. Very good. Great stuff. Great stuff. All right, Brian, uh, would you, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, so, so Jonathan, so did you see a surge in services during or post pandemic? And what would you, what would you see was the main driver for the you know need for implementation of your technology? Um, with regard to our, our technology, uh, the, the driver, which isn't really the, isn't necessarily the core of what we do, but it was the, the need of the moment, uh, was understanding inventory. Uh, folks were scrambling to get devices to certain locations, and they were thinking about how to basically manage that as they realized, uh, to Shafali's point earlier, that this isn't going to be a one or two week thing. This is going to be a, a year long thing. Um, so inventory management, which of course has a cybersecurity aspect to it, but more of an operational function, to be quite honest, was a was a big driver. Uh, and then that 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 was certainly something that we that we started to see more and more. Like I think, I mean, I guess it's the it's the essence of this entire conversation that. The operational needs uh, took precedence, uh, and that was part of the driver that uh, that we felt. So let me so let me shift that to so Shafali. Same thing. So did you did you see that need from? So again, device management obviously was a you know a need probably for the organizations. But how were you managing that? And how did you see you know doing that? Because it's not so much a cyber issue, but just operational support. And, and how did you guys work that through? Yeah, so there were so many operational issues that we went through. And, you know, I think it was more so, you know, how do we get patient appointments uh, taken care of? How do patients communicate with us? And so really looking at the applications, uh, we had to go buy other applications that would allow us to communicate with patients. Um, you know, and then the, the proper consent and authorizations that were required because, you know, in order to do a telemedicine or a teleconference visit, um, you know, 
were we going to get reimbursed for that or not? That was another thing, right? Um, and then also if we provided these telemedicine or telehealth services, um, what platform do we use? Do we use Zoom? And then we started to use Zoom and then all there was that incident, right? So then everyone's paranoid and going, okay, what else can we use? And then, so then it was Cisco WebEx. And then you kind of migrated through different platforms as things started evolving. And so, you know, the key here is when I look at drivers is, you know, what is the set of communication tools we would use right off the bat for the different purposes of what a healthcare institution, institution or even just a hospital would need to communicate in a pandemic or in a disaster, right? Is it texting? Is it uh, pagers? Is it, uh, you know, give out uh, company-issued telephones um, or, you know, smartphones? Do you use that? Uh, you know, do you allow uh, personal phones to be used? So I think there was quite a few things that, that are drivers in this uh, that, and I go back to the communication tools. I think that is the biggest thing. And, and there's a lot of security risk involved with communication tools, right? Because depending on how the application is used on a phone, you know, if you have, um, you know, any kind of security on the phones like AirWatch or Intune, right? Some of those types of things, then you may feel a little bit more secure as a security uh, professional that you can use uh, such information through that uh, to take care of patients. So, but yes, there's, I think the communication tools were the biggest drivers. Okay. Very good. Shafali, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Uh, yeah, I've got a question for both of them. And I would say that, you know, with um, to start with Brian, that, you know, as part of a peer of a, a health system, um, what did you feel was one of the, the biggest lessons learned from the pandemic? Like specifically for your as a CISO? Um, for me, I think actually was, this was kind of the, why I brought my question up about some of the, the, the need for my inventory management. I think it was an operational aspect, right? So people look at security and say, well, you guys must know all our full inventory and we have inventory control, but it was just changing and rapidly moving, right? So, you know, hey, we need, you know, 30 new desktops to stand up at this testing center. Where do we get them? You know, in shifting between different hospitals, who has it? What's the case, you know, the need? What about the, you know, remote people? They don't have computers at home. We get to give them devices. How are we getting that? You know, when we were, and, and, and you know, parallel to this process, well, unfortunately, our, one of our hardware suppliers was hit with a tornado before, and they were actually down before the pandemic. And then, you know, so we had a, a little bit of delay and then we're this big need for more devices to be distributed. And we didn't have that. So we had to really go back and prioritize and shift around and saying, how do we triage and say, what's the need? Where do we focus? What are the, what's the, the aspect here to push it out? So one of the things, you know, it's, it's an operational issue, but it's also like, you know, how well were we doing that? And then, and I agree, we had multiple communications platforms so how do we communicate that to everyone? What was the method? Um, we weren't on multiple email systems. So, you know, email distribution lists were challenging. How do we get it out? Who's the, who's working on this? So that's where that whole, um, you know, kind of command center management process was. And I look at saying, you know, lessons are, we could have probably come back better ways of saying, here's a good way to start having an understanding of what's there, how it is, what's being used and where we could shift it and helping people in that you know, next, if, you know, if we need to do this again and, you know, manage that kind of crisis, because I think we were 
kind of fell short a little bit in that. And so it was a lot of, you know, and again, at the end user perspective, a lot of frustration because they're just seeing wait times and waiting for certain things. So that's how I, um, you know, see some of the, the, you know, things that we could have improved upon in that perspective. So. Jonathan. Um, I think uh, for me, uh, just at a high level, and, and we discussed some of this throughout the discussion, when, when I look at look back at the organizations that, 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 I, that I was working with throughout the pandemic and still am, I think that ultimately the, the biggest thing that can turn a sticky situation into something much more successful is just planning, 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 and planning. Um, organizations that had a contingency plan, a disaster recovery, and, and so on, and that did exercises around it beforehand, uh, they were able to to turn it around uh, very quickly, and there was no there was still a lot of work to be done. But uh, the, the 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 level of uh, of tension, the the burnout, the all the other uh, as the negative aspects of, of working hard were uh, were minimal. And others that just didn't have uh, adequate planning that that was much tougher. Uh, there were basic things that could not be done. Uh, users uh, sometimes felt that. Um, from an operational standpoint, physicians, and it wasn't as good as it could have been. Uh, so to me, it's, again, it, it, goes, it goes back to planning. Uh, and, and uh, you know, just reference what we said before, and it's, it's a good takeaway, I think. It's, uh, there's all sorts of uh, disaster uh, recovery planning uh, that's for uh, a two-week uh, mm. Disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, now we have to be accustomed to to handling uh, crises that last much longer within the healthcare sector. I think that's a that's a really good takeaway here. All right, very good. We uh, don't have too much time left, but I want to get a final word, a piece of advice from our panelists. If you want to think of a, a CISO out there, a colleague, um, just looking for your best advice, takeaway, and really what we're talking about is going back, cleaning up. Uh, any excess risk that's still left um, that, you know, we don't want anything to have been forgotten. Um, that's kind of egregious and a real issue out there. So Shafali, let's start with you, your final piece of advice. So, you know, from a security perspective, we, um, a daily basis, look at threat hunting. You know, we are looking at the uh, activities, monitoring, but when we deal with a pandemic, the alignment between emergency management and response, cybersecurity, disaster recovery, and business continuity, those four have to be aligned. And I think that there should be a revised focus on those four circles within an organization. Because once you have those four circles working together and testing, you could face any disaster, big or small, and feel at least a little bit more comfortable knowing what you have ahead of you, what you have to do. So I would focus on those four areas and how they tie in uh, operationally and how we take care of our patients. Very good. Brian? So I think it's making sure you have a, a strong risk management process in place before, because if you're trying to adapt it, that process while you're in this, you know, recovery continuity mode, it's not going to work. So having that, and this is, uh, you know, I concur with, I say, you know, good, 
um, synergies between those teams, you know, emergency management, operational support, cybersecurity, all that, build that in, make sure that that is strong and effective. And so this way you don't, we don't get caught with, you know, like with what Jonathan noted too, is like, you know, the after effect, Hey, by the way, we already implemented this Here's you know, you know, come to security afterwards. Right. So I think if you have that kind of a, a built-in process where everybody's engaged early on, and then you're able to, to have the best planning, you know, even if it's, you know, kind of um, immediate planning saying, what do we do? Because you're bringing the right resources together up front versus, oh, let's bring in, you know, our, our emergency director here or, or CISO after the fact, let's just get them all together and understand that. So I think those are things that I would say, you know, we learned and also that would, you know, we had some of that in process. I wouldn't say it was, you know, top tier, but I think it was, we were fair to, you know, good in that piece and that helped us. So just, to, you know, but even strengthening that, right, keeping those, you know, communication processes open and engaged is, is key. Very good, Jonathan. I, I think maybe just last thing uh, for me, just building on and what was said earlier is just uh, also creating with regard to the processes that were uh, underlined by Brian right now, um, just a good governance structure, a, an inclusive one. Many of the risk assessment exercises and the mitigating controls that can be placed afterwards, they require a, stakeholders that are outside of information security clinical engineering, network security, and so on. Uh, so one of the really good things that I've been seeing is that those command centers, if they continue to exist in a little bit of a, of a different cadence and different form after uh, the height of COVID, that could actually be really good. Uh, working closely with the stakeholders, and then you just get better resolution, better insight into the clinical context of the, th of the threat, of the risk. Uh, I think that might be a plus uh, that we could leverage as a lessons learned from uh, from the command center model throughout COVID. All right. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Tremendous discussion. We covered a lot of ground and a lot of good information regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck for your certificate of attendance. <clears throat> you will receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, uh, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel very much, Shafali Mukancheri, Brian Kayer, and our good friend Jonathan Langer. I want to thank Medigate for um, continuing to work with us and sponsor these valuable events, and I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.